you know, and in documentary too, the editor really is the co-director in my opinion, because right. there is, you know, there isn't a script necessarily. There isn't anything written. You're working with like raw footage from oftentimes from real life or you're working from interviews, you know? So I feel like the role of the editor documentary is even that much more stepped up. And, um, right. and I enjoyed that part of it, which is, which led me eventually to segue into directing. I was like, kind of doing it anyway sort of you know like feeling like that there was you know it was it was closer you know to and easier right. to kind of do from the vantage point of having been an editor in documentary let's shoot with pete chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. Welcome to episode 32 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Our guest today is the talented editor, director, um, storyteller, former animator Gita Gandabir. Um, most recently, she was the executive producer and a director on Black and Missing on HBO with uh, Soledad O'Brien Productions. Uh, Got to give a shout out to our producer, Tristan Nash, for tapping Gita on the shoulder and uh, locking her in for this interview. We have a really good conversation that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but first, as always, I will give you the little update on where we are in the week. And a little bit of, of uh, backstory, too, on Kita. Back in 2005, when I was uh, raising money for my feature premium and looking for an editor, I had been introduced to Gita by Mr. Sam Pollard, um, who is one of, uh, he's an editor, director, really awesome filmmaker, uh, faculty at NYU, mentor. Um, and while I was hoping he'd be able to cut the film, uh, the man is probably one of the more busy uh, working storytellers that you'll find in the game. And so he introduced me to a handful of other editors, Gita included. We chatted, um, weren't able to work it out with the timing, but uh, always uh, look forward to working with her one day, which we do talk about at the end of this interview. But um, yeah, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. In the other news, uh, we just completed week one of prep on Reasonable Doubt, episode 102, which I'm directing. So we've been casting, we've been doing location scouts. We did the tech scout already. Um, we have a... Uh, eight day prep a little bit longer than normal for a nine day shoot. Uh, seven of those days are out on location. So we're really gonna continue uh, solidifying the look and feel of the show in this episode. And uh, after I roll into production, uh, the first director will start, Nima Barnett, who I'm looking forward to working with. And then I'll uh, get to roll around with her where I can and 
uh, get into that producer director bag, like Dan Adias and I talked about and Michael Spiller and uh, a couple guests coming up. We'll have that same chat. Uh, Jeff Bird, who's producing director on Our Kind of People and Crystal Roberson, producing director on Queens. So as you can tell, um, y'all get what I'm looking for here. I, I was looking to talk to people who could um, prepare me for the job ahead of me. And so we chat and I bring it to you. So it really is about sitting down and enjoying a little bit of time with um, folks, you know, over coffee, beer, or the internet, Zoom, uh, sharing war stories and and, and supporting each other. Um, other than that, uh, nothing much to report that is new. So we will get into episode 32 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring editor, director, executive producer and director of HBO's Black and Missing, Gita Gandabir. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. What, in your opinion, makes a good story? Um, so I think a good story, from what I understand, there's a, there's a couple elements. And just also from my work in film, I think a good story needs to have a, a proper beginning, middle, and end. Um, I like the a structure. I mean, again, it can be three acts, it can be five acts, as we know, but there, there needs to be the feeling of a journey for the audience that they've that they've they've started with you in a certain place. They need to become attached to the to the characters, you know, um, whoever they may be, and they need to feel that they're traveling with them to a destination. And whether or not they arrive is up to the director, obviously, but um, I think that's important. I also think that there are, the best stories have simple truths to them. You know, there's right. simple truths and kind of that are universal that we can all relate to that really help an audience connect with. Um, you know, no matter how complicated the, the, the the design of the storytelling, there has to be this underlying truth that that allows um, folks to really again that connect connect to the people they are watching or whatever they're watching. Maybe it's an animated character, you know. But um, right. so I think that's really important. Then I, and then the other thing that I think is really critical to for a good story is. Um, is the, again, is the telling of it, right? Like it's how, cause you can tell an amazing story in the most, in a way that does not engage the audience and that isn't emotional yeah. or it's, it's, it's the connection. It's the ability to connect emotionally with the audience. And that also makes for a good story. I have to say, I've watched, I've watched some films recently where I'm like, Ugh. you know, like, like I get that the story is meant to, to, to be good, but if it's again, if it's not told right. the right way, you lose that connection. Yeah. I think about like all like all my years working in administrative positions, and and one job was literally by the water cooler, you know. And <laughs> it would be it would be interesting to watch. I would just kind of listen to people talk while at the water cooler, and someone with something heart wrenching and and dramatic would bore the you know whatever out of somebody and then someone talking about a mundane thing with like a style and like and knowing how to like hit the punch lines and whatever would keep somebody there for a whole cup of coffee and that's it's, right. you know that's the that's the job of the storyteller you you mentioned um a three act or a five act and actually that i what 
why would a film or a story be structured in five acts versus three? I think that's a, the five act thing is sort of, you know, goes back to the, the old, you know, like the old kind of traditional styles of storytelling. Like there is, there is, you know, I don't know if you, if you took like literature, you know, at some point, but there is, there is a five act structure to, um, that, that at least I learned about. And I don't think it's so popular today, you know, like it's too long, frankly, when everybody's looking at right. TikTok, like who's gonna, you can't even get through like a three second structure. So, right. but, but, um, you know, for for like more complex storytelling, right? Like mm-hmm. that was an option, like the Iliad, the Odyssey, et cetera, you know, those types of things like the, um, the, and and that's what I remember. But I, I obviously the three act structure is definitely the most popular and right. And right. And it's funny too how it's so timely because now the and I, I don't have terms for what I'm talking about, but like it seems like as of I don't know the last decade or so, at least in narrative pieces and maybe in doc as well. There's like this. Let's start. Let's let's introduce you to the world, almost like. 75, 80% into the story. And then we're going to go back to the beginning, travel back to that point, and then pivot toward, you know, the the conclusion of it. That's Um, right. The starting, the starting or the the book ending, right? The the sort of book ending of stuff, like starting at the end and then returning, you know, yeah. And and then showing us how we got there or starting in the middle and showing us how we got there. Yeah, those are all sort of tactics, but those stories still have, usually they have a traditional there's still a three act structure you know right where like you're the the beginning no matter what it is is, is your introduction the middle is your conflict you know your mm-hmm. catharsis and then the resolve is is after right. that and that was the other thing that I wanted to say a really good story also usually has some sort of conflict the best right. stories have conflict which is why we love you know superhero films and which is why we you know what I mean like there's always an obstacle that the protagonist has to overcome you know and if there's nothing to overcome it can it's a little dull you know (laughs) like if there's nothing to achieve you're like what are we doing here like why are we watching this you know so so what what's the first story uh this is kind of a two-part question that you remember having an impact on you like like a visceral impact and uh when did you decide that you wanted to get into this world of, of telling stories? Sure. So the first story, and this is kind of a, a bizarre example that uh, I ever, like I, that as a small child that had an impact on me was actually the story of Robin Hood. So, you know, and I, I saw, I think the Disney version of it, which was like, you know, they animor like they made him into a fox, or and mm-hmm. you know, they the characters were animals. But the story of what he was trying to do, even at the, the age that I was, whenever I saw it, it was you know, it was definitely in some early elementary school, like resonated with me so much. You know, the idea of this person who was about social justice, you know, like even though he was a fox who was like robbing the rich to help the poor, you know, that sort of concept really struck me. And and I think that 
that idea of that kind of hero also, you know, there weren't many women in those kind of roles um, that, I, that were prevalent in media. And then I think I remember there was a show in the seventies, you know, when I was, yet when I was young, um, there was the bionic woman and, <laughs> and mighty ISIS and the, the ISIS in particular, the one about um, that person, I think it was on for like a season. I don't know what happened to it, but that show I remember because there was actually a person, a BIPOC person in that role, mm -hmm. you know, I, like that to me was thrilling. So right. those are sort of the stories that I, as, as silly as they are, you know, um, that were on media, you know, that were media related, that were the first ones that really struck me as being like interesting and powerful because there was a clear hero or there was a shiro, you know what I mean? And they were, um, again, always trying to help people, always something to overcome. Right. And so that to me was really interesting and exciting. Um, and then I think, and then when, ever since I was young, I was always, I had a lot of siblings. We grew, I grew up in a joint family with a lot of siblings and cousins and who I was always bossing around. Like we would always put on plays, you know, uh -huh. and I would always make them put on plays, which I think after a while they were done with. But, but so I think even from that young age, there was some, like I was trying to, to create a like stage something or like make a show out of something, you know? Right. And um, so we would, you know, that was the way that we played. And then it sort of in real life, you know, I got into animation. I worked for Spike Lee for many years. He was really my a mentor. Spike Lee and Sam Pollard both kind of gave me my first chances in the industry. And then I was doing, I was doing editing, which is all about structure and all about story, right? That's the most, it's like who you hand everything to to make the story <laughs> thing, right? So I was doing that kind of work. And then, you know, and then I segued into directing eventually. So gotcha. um, but yeah, and I'm a, and I love to read too. I was also an avid reader. So I think you know, reading, it's all about, you know, good stories, being immersed in that. And so from that, from those first kind of plays with your family, you were like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this as my education. I'm going to. Actually, uh, no, like, I didn't. And forgive me, I didn't mean to step on you, but I didn't do that. I didn't. So in college, I actually studied, you know, in high school, I was in theater, like I did theater. Um, but I was more on the performance side. You know, I would do whatever, yeah. you know, school, local school play, the school plays or whatever. And then afterwards, when I went to college, I'd studied arts and cross-cultural, like meaning actual making, making of art, you know. So I studied art and cross-cultural, what was called at the time cross-cultural anthropology, which is bizarre, but, you know, uh, anthropology and um, animation and you know minor in Spanish and so I did like a mix of things that made no sense and then eventually <laughs> it didn't add up to a job and then afterwards I was working actually in animation for about six okay. months and I ran into Spike who was teaching at Harvard and basically kind of stalked him around the campus because I was working out of Harvard until he gave me right. an internship and that's how I got work. Was so. this pre-NYU teaching there or was he teaching like he a, just begun. a special? Yeah, he had just begun. It was, I think, or he was, it was um, on Malcolm X. So my first uh, film in the industry was Malcolm X because Spike hired me. Wow, that's awesome. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about what the editor does. You know, like how do you when you um, 
I actually, I won't even, I won't even set that up. I'll just let you answer. Like, what does the editor do? What does the editor do? Okay. So um, in my experience, the, I mean, the editor to me and having been one probably is like one of the most important people on the team. The editor actually functions in, in documentary even more so, I think as a, like, they're like a co-director, honestly, you know? Mm because they end up, you know, you hand them all of the material that you think makes this good story. And they're the one who actually has to put the story together, you know? Um, and I think with, you know, Sam actually told me something very wise once, which I remember and which stayed with me, but he said, you know, film is only like with a narrative film, it's really, you know, there's the script. So it's like the script plus the, the vision of the team, the production team, you know, then the editor, you know, that's like how right. you make them. And also he, he said something else along with that, which was that there's always like, you think you're making one film, but you end up with, there's really three different films in your process. Like there's a film you envision or you script or you research, you know, if you're, it's a documentary or a narrative, there's the film you shoot and then there's the film you edit and they're all like, they end up being different. Like it's never what you originally planned. And then the, and the editor is sort of the, the editor to me is always the fixer, you know, they're the heavy, they're like the person you bring in at the, you know, at the end who has to clean up everybody's mess and, but also, you know, has to make it sing. So it's it's like the re, it's like that third stage is the reality check also yes. right because because you know when you're writing it's like oh it's, it's so great and but once the actors act you know yeah it'll it'll all work it'll, it'll and all then you're work. like oh uh, no yeah then you shoot it and you're like well okay well it's, it's getting dark but we'll fix it in post and we'll fix it in none post of, yeah none of, and the, none of these takes are good but I. Gita will make it work. Yeah, exactly. Like, we'll fix it in post. Now the and the I think the editor is also oftentimes, unfortunately, the naysayer, right? The editor can gets like the unpopular, you know, is the like sort of has the unpopular job of being the one who's like, this is all there is. We know right. that doesn't exist. You didn't shoot that. Like, you know, why did you do it this way? You know, so you know, editors get a bad rap for being that person. What are the, I, I love the fact that you say they're like, uh, editors are almost like an un, an unsung, unheralded co-director, you know? And I think about this quote, which I'll butcher, but it was from George Lucas. He talked about like being a filmmaker, you have to know, you have to know something about literature, philosophy, you know, architecture, music, like almost all of the arts because it, any given time, you're going to need them to enhance your story uh, and even just to tell it. And so, like, is, the, is there a comparable um, kind of mastery of many trades required to be a good editor? So I think a good editor needs a sense of what's interesting is there's a math. I think good editors mm -hmm. um, understand math like they understand um, they understand uh, rhythm. They like they understand music, music, you know, and 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 the all of those things require math. Like music is about timing and rhythm, right? And pacing and and beats. And good editors know all of that stuff. They understand good editors too. I find the best editors are incredibly empathetic. Like they have, mm -hmm. even if they don't display, like 
they have the ability to read emotion and um you know body language and to to imagine something there there's almost like a um like a clairvoyance to mm-hmm. editing where you're like you you can you you have to be able to constantly anticipate the audience's gaze you know and what they would see and what they would feel you know and even more importantly by how you put some things you know a scene together or a montage or you know and you um and that is really like those things are I think incredibly you know they're they're rare like not anybody can sit down at a keyboard you know now and which is I think what's been amazing about the digital revolution that happened years ago for our industry and all industries is the great it was the great equalizer like before that to be in film at all was so expensive you know it was so challenging like when I started and you had to actually shoot on film and get it developed and then get us steam back and god knows what else like all of that was impossible and now we have you know the iphone like you can make a film on this like i can edit on this you know that's all actually i think amazing and that's genius but but i do think um you know so anyone can do it but it doesn't mean that you have the sort of the i think the intuition that you you can maybe it can be cultivated but i think oftentimes it's instinctual you know i totally agree I totally agree. It, it's like there's just a certain when everyone everyone working at their best probably can't really explain what they're doing, right? Yeah. Because it, it is instinctual. And you know, I think about like all the moving parts of like uh, like film is such a it's collaborative, but it's oftentimes like leaning on one piece of the puzzle more than at on others. But like I'm thinking of those moments where like we got one take, you know, we have to get this now. So like actors got to kill it. Cameras got to kill it. Sounds got to kill it. Like when that symphony comes together, it's like, you can't even, it's like you're in a zone and, and you can't, you can't teach a good steady cam up when to pan, you know, you can't teach a, a good, a good editor, like when to, when to cut away. It's a, it's such a, it's That's an instinctual right. thing. And also the best take, right? Like, because so much of film acting is not, uh, is is nuance, right? Like the whole thing, if your theater acting is all projection, right? And then film acting, it's just about the, you know, so often about the face, right? It's the facial right. expressions and what they, so you, to be able to kind of sort of discern like this take versus this take versus that take, you know, and which one actually reads as the most authentic to the emotion you're trying to convey or to the scene or to the the response that the person would have is Mm -hmm. you know that's like again you have to even though I feel like editors are locked in a closet so much of the time like they're like trapped you know away from society because you know you're you're stuck editing I they still have to have this incredibly um you know, nuanced understanding of, of he, the complexity of human nature and of the emotions that we have and, you know, right. and, and how we react to things right. and how we, how we act and react. And that's, you know, that's, again, not everybody has that, you know. Right. And you have to, you have to want to have that because much of what people do to get through their day is a void. Right. Yeah. And 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 <laughs> totally. and our job is to get to 
the place where we're showing the things that people want to brush under the rug or turn away from. Mm-hmm. Can, can you can you take me back to um, Malcolm X and working on that? Like if you, you were coming from more of an animation background, now you're working on this film. Um, what was it like? What were the differences? What were you learning? You know, what was it? What was what was Dita going through? So I was um, I was very young. I was 21, I think. I had finished college and I moved to New York. I had gone to school in New York, but not in the city itself. I'd gone to SUNY Purchase. And so I was very familiar with the city. I spent a lot of time there as, you know, we, as any kid, you know, needed to have it, like was searching for something to do. You know, we would just go into the city every weekend um, and had a lot of friends who, you know, were attending the school from the city. But I moved back. I moved to Brooklyn. And um, after being, you know, at Harvard, like in that, in Boston for six months, I quickly moved back. I started, and Spike is actually the one who made the connection, I think, between animation and, um, you know, and editing, like sequential art and editing. And he put me in the edit room. He put me in, um, I start, was in, he actually put me, first I was in sound editing, because that's where I think there was a need. And then he right. shoved me after that into, I got, I went into picture with um, Barry Brown and Sam also worked on Malcolm X for a little bit. And Tula Goenka was actually the person, she's now a professor at Syracuse, who was instrumental. And she kind of took me under her wing around with, along with a couple other uh, you know, young people who were working there at the time. I could, I think she thought I was totally lost and I'm sure she was right. Like, she was just like, you don't know, you don't know what you're doing, but she, uh, and she sort of taught me everything. She taught me, you know, again, there was like the sinking of dailies at that time. Everything was on film. Like we were using a splicer. Like it was just so different than it is today. I mean, conceptually we're doing the same thing, but it was very different, you know, as far as there was a lot of physical labor involved, like in the editing, like the reels, like the reels of film and, and the hours were very long and it was a lot of organizing. Like we would, I would sit with um, Barry or with Sam and there were, you know, we had trims, like pieces of the film to keep track of, you know, and, and everything would just took so much longer. Like that edit was, I think a year and a half you know, like the, the whole production of the film, which is now seems bananas, you know, like a four month that it is long, right, for anything. But, um, but it was the most incredible, it was hard and, you know, but it was like the most glorious place to be at that time as a young BIPOC person, right? Like you're like, I'm working for Spike Lee, I'm working for 40 years and a mule, you know, it felt like we were doing, you know, to be there was to feel chosen. Like we were doing this work that was so important. Malcolm X obviously being this, you know, that movie was enormous. It got nominated for the Oscar. Like it was just such an ambitious project. And we were, I was so like, everyone who was there, who was working for Spike at that time was so incredibly proud. Like we felt, it was revolutionary, you know? It was like, even though obviously there have been great filmmakers who came before, you know, he had, you know, he had the company. It just, there was nothing quite like it at that right. time. Right. And still, um, so. you know, what, was there a moment where you were like, um, in this narrative world, uh, in terms of non-animation, if that's the way to, to, to phrase it, <laughs> um, where you were like, okay, I, I just did this scene or I, or I put together this, you know, sequence or whatever. And, and, and you looked at it and you're like, I, I got it. That's good. Like I'm getting better. Like, do you, is there a moment you remember where that happened? 
Sure. So I worked with Spike and Sam on a number of things. And after that, like I worked on a bunch of Spike's films and Sam always let us cut. Like Sam was, I think one thing that I feel, I do think I was the last sort of to get, have this experience because of, you know, everything going digital, but the, the, you know, and computers sort of being the way after that, the one thing about that process as time consuming and, you know, long and tenuous as it was, was the, the, you would sit with the editor all day as the assistant. Like I actually sat next to my editor and, um, and that track, you know, and you, it was a training, you know, you would watch them cut if they were, you know, if they were kind, they would talk to you, you know, they would tell you what they were doing and why. And then like Sam would go to lunch and be like, finish this scene. And I sometimes the first few times he did that, I would, I think I tangled myself up in all the film, like the steam deck, you know, to try to work the steam deck. Like, I think like I made a huge mess and it was like, a, he came, Sam came back to like a snarl, you know, a film. Right. I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. But the, but it was in that process, I remember being like, oh, shoot, I get it. Because he would critique. He'd come back and be like, he'd be like, all right, let's see it. I'd play and he'd be like, okay, you should have done this, this and that. You know, or here's what, this is how. Or, you know, so so there was this, it was, I was literally, back then there was like, you were, there was the term apprentice editor. And it really right. was that, like it was an, you know, an apprenticeship where you were able to learn that way. So I don't remember, I don't know if I remember the scene, but I remember having that process. And I think that is how, you know, it really mm -hmm. made a difference to me. And on, um, I think on Bamboozled, I ended up with a associate editor credit at that time. And that was like a huge deal, you know, after right. working for a long time. That's, a, that's an interesting um, mile marker, right? Because that was one of the earlier digital films yes. right um and if i remember correctly what was it nine cameras on that shoot or it was, it was, it was a, yeah it was, it was crazy the cameras were sometimes in each other's way like you know sometimes right. you're like oh dear like they were trying to you know it was the idea like the advent of this digital kind of revolution and they would uh they would you know suddenly we were everything was on video so it was Spike obviously liking to do things big, you know, like a lot of, so there was, yeah, it was, I think Alan Kuris was, no, who, who shot that? Yeah, I think it was Alan Kuris. It was Alan, yeah. And so the, the yeah, there's sometimes it was like, we were like, what can we do with the fifth camera? You know, because they were like, the fifth camera had like all everybody else in the shot. You know yeah. what I mean? It had the whole crew, like it became like it was funny, you know, after a while. I think we used maybe up to four cameras, you know, and then some of the other ones we were like, uh, you know, there was a scene, the the mat with the Mau Mau's at the end where we finally yeah. used all of them, but yeah, it was, there was some overkill there. I, I, did, a, I did a show, um, All Rise, a couple episodes where after COVID, um, they had 27 cameras available and so uh and and only three i mean let me not misspeak maybe two operators they were all remote uh remote driven there was one operator who was in the a zone right so they could be a steady cam operator and be near the the, the cast um and then i think there was one more operator but it was we'd shoot so many plates because we'd have to wipe out camera in in post 
and it was just like cameras, cameras everywhere. But it was, it was, it was challenging because you weren't able to accomplish much movement. Yeah. So it was really right. like, how can you make the actors move to give some sense of fluidity while dealing with the fact that you don't want to have to wipe out 18 cameras yeah. you know, in, in, your, in your journey toward that. Did you, did you know, what, what did you notice um, in post? Uh, you know, so you have four cameras. It was so confusing. That, like, it was so confusing yeah. because we also were just, Spike was one of the last holdouts, if I remember correctly, to transition um, to Avid. He didn't want to, he didn't necessarily want to transition to Avid. So mm. we were, you know, we'd been working on like a steam back sort of past a little bit past when other people had already gone to Avid. And I remember with all those cameras, like suddenly we had like 50,000 tapes and all these shuttle drives, like, and just, you know, it was, it was very challenging to keep track of, you know, to, and then there were also different like formats, like, you know, we had, I think most everything was on beta, like we were working on beta, but I just think in the edit, it was a little bit chaotic and, you know, truth be told, Spike will be mad, but there was a point where I think we were just like, just forget it. Like, forget, like, we were like, let's just ingest the A, B, C, D, E cameras and like everything else. It just kind of, you know what I mean? And like, we'll catch up to that later because we couldn't, you know, and then the Avid, you know, in, in those days, like it was still kind of creaky and the timeline, like the layers of camera, you know, like, right. it feels like, like you can even see them, like, you know. You need like, you need like four monitors just to see the timeline. Just to see the timeline, like stacked on yeah. top of each other. So it was, so it was, yeah, it became, it, there was a point where we were like, maybe this is, you know, maybe some of this is silly, but it was, but it was, I mean, it was important exploration, right? It was just right. to see what you could do. You know, that makes that I have a question off of that. And and you can make me smarter here. Um, When (laughs) (laughs) so from from the assistant editor and editor, like when I've been on shows, um, you know, I've shadowed other directors, this isn't me, where there's like so many takes and I'm like, wow. Right. Like, like, I don't forget why you're doing them, but they're being done. And then that goes to post and there's, you know, all 13, 14 takes, you know, in five scenes from that day and the editor's cut has to be put together. And I'm kind of, I'm thinking specifically about television, but is someone, is the assistant editor looking through everything, you know, like if the script supervisor did not provide, you know, print this, print that, you know, this is the one. Are they looking through everything or are they just like, all right, I'm probably going to grab the last take because typically <laughs> that's that that's where they settled on what they wanted to do. Or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, how does it how does it go down in those in those rooms? So I, I have to say when I was editing, I was I, I basically would screen, obviously. Um, I used to screen like everything that was, you know, that there was because, and I would usually have this director selects, you know, like circled, but, um, but I, the, the idea that it would be the assistant editor to me would be surprising because I think the, like, ultimately, I think the editor has to make that choice, you know, or should make that choice of what looks best, you know, uh, the, the best one. So, but yeah, my experience, the editor screens everything. 
I wonder if it, do you think there's a difference in, in TV with the speed? No, not so much. Yeah. Like I okay. still think, even if you do 13 takes, you know, depending on how long the scene is, it's not that hard to watch them. Right. You know, and sometimes too, I'll give you this, the trick of fast forwarding, <laughs> you know, like you can <laughs> watch them on double speed, you know, like which one feels the most, you know, slow it down when you need to. But yeah, I still right. think it's 13 takes might seem like a lot, but it's, you know, it's manageable. Because the scene is usually at best, like, you know, how long is a scene? Like five, you know, a couple minutes, right? So yeah. in, in TV, you have, you know, a bunch of two minute scenes. So I yeah, guess so in, in that regard, yeah. That's yeah. Nothing. Well, this is comforting for me because I, I often Because <laughs> you're now feeling guilty. Um, you're like, yeah, you know, or like you get stuff and I'm like, I'm wondering like, what's really been chosen in, in, yeah. in this? <laughs> yeah, what is, um, yeah, exactly. Hi. This is Dan Adius, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions. What was the transition from narrative to doc which seemed to happen uh maybe sometime after bamboozle so really for me it was 9-11 i think mm. post i was editing mm. um i was i got into editing and i found that you know mm. some of the it was harder at that time you know to get a job on like uh a fully paying narrative film was hard because a lot of this, the established directors have their editor, right? Like they don't want to necessarily, even though Spike was really generous and so were Barry and Sam, so Spike, if he has the option, his lead editor is going to be one of them, right? Because they have a language. So, right. and, you know, he had the money. So like, why would he, you know, it's like, I could, I could always kind of be the second editor or something, but I wanted to like kind of be a full-fledged editor on my own. So I think I, I segued into doing some television. Then around 9-11, I remember a lot of the, the production work left New York, like the big productions right. that, um, you know, that were also editing in New York decided to shift back to LA or, or other places because they were, you know, they were just worried that something was going to happen again and it was going to shut down their production. Right. So right. I was like, shit you know like well, what do I do like there was you know work just kind of shifted and then the advent and there was the advent of like reality television and you know and documentary and documentaries had always been there but it sort of had, was becoming more prevalent I think you know at first there were only two venues for documentary there was PBS and then slowly HBO but documentary partly driven by reality television too I think was seeing more of a resurgence 
And so there was, and I didn't want to move. I was like, I don't want to go to LA. You know, I didn't want to leave. And so I want staying in New York meant branching out. And that's sort of how I ended up right. into documentary. And then uh, what's interesting is, is, and then, and Sam had always, Sam had started in documentary. So I had that model, you know, of someone who had worked in that. And I actually, once I started working in it, I kind of got hooked. Like it was, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of like the truth being stranger than fiction. And and then also the, I love the, the social justice aspect of it. Like being able to tell stories that otherwise might not have a platform, you know, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, that to me was really important, you know, kind of right. getting those, being able to be a vehicle, you know, to get stories out there felt, felt like something worth doing, you know, felt like it mattered, you know, and you could be, you could be useful maybe is <laughs> right. a big part of it too. So it, sound, um, it sounds like all of these things that you had, that were important to you and that you had been developing and and building an interest around and, a, and an expertise around were kind of put into a nice you know gumbo in documentary where they all yeah. kind of got to be applied that's right and then and then i uh i was lucky enough to work with some great directors and you know i worked with um i've spent a lot of time working with the great sheila nevins at hbo and mm-hmm. her team you know the, the women under her at that time there's sarah bernstein jackie glover uh nancy um nancy and lisa who now are you know um are still we're still at hbo i even after right. Sheila is not there anymore but that i just i think i just i learned so much you know and in documentary too the editor really is the co-director in my opinion because right. there is you know there isn't a script necessarily there isn't anything written you're working with like raw footage from oftentimes from real life or you're working from interviews you know and so i feel like the role of the editor in documentary is even that much more stepped up and um, right. and i enjoyed that part of it which is which led me eventually to segue into directing. So, right. Um, right. because I, I was like, kind of doing it anyway, sort of, you know, like feeling like that there was, you know, it was it was closer, you know, to and easier right. to kind of do from the vantage point of having been an editor in documentary. Right. I must say like your uh, innate muscle as an editor is reflected in your answers. Because <laughs> many of you, many of your no, for, like for real, like many of your answers, they they have like they have a they have an act structure and like a payoff, um, which which is great. I could probably just ask one question and and sit back. <laughs> um, <laughs> the was there anything that you took from or that you noticed from animation and narrative that you said, huh, this is really useful in documentary. Totally. No, totally. Absolutely. It's still the story. It's still storytelling. So I think that's Mm -hmm. the main thing. I think I approach my, my films that I direct and edit now as if they were narrative. It's always character first, emotion first, you know what I mean? Because the truth is with documentary film, the problem I found with documentary is even though I love it, is that um, a lot of times it can, everything can feel like an advocacy piece. Like, you know, you don't want your film to come off as some advocacy piece or like a promotional piece or like some sort of, you know, just it it can be 
you know, you don't want to be like, if you don't want to go into lecture mode, like people just, what I found is that when people feel that they're lectured, they feel dead inside. And then that's, you lose them, right. you know? So you right. really have to, I think I, I always think of my documentary films as, or try to, even if they are mostly interview to keep them as character driven as possible, you know, to, yes. to keep, again, because that's what people relate to. And it's what differentiates it from news as well. So, um, that's always, and whenever anybody brings me a topic, they're like, I want to make a film about, you know, well, would you be willing to direct this film about X? I'm like, well, what's the story? Because this, the right. film about X is a topic, you know? Right. What's the, do you think, what, where's the beginning? Where's the middle? Where's the end? You know, what are we following? Do you think that that's why there's, it's so much more common now for documentaries to do what Michael Moore kind of was instrumental in, in introducing, which is like, it's a documentary, but like, roll with me. Yeah, right? it's the, and, fir the first and, person narrative, I think, right? Which he sort of yeah. perfected, but I think, but was it, was it, who was doing that beforehand? Uh, forgive me, there there are definitely documentary directors, like Werner Herzog always yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, you know, does the narration from the first person, like if you, like right. was, it, was it Grizzly Man or who did Grizzly Man? That's is that Werner? But forgive me. Right. Oh, with the with the bear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> that like awful story about the guy and you know who the gentleman who was like living among the bears, right? But that, but right. so Werner, so he's always in his films, you know. Or he right. he there is that, and Alex Gibney too, who's also a mentor, puts himself. He puts a narration in his films that is right. his perspective. Um, right. Uh, and I think the, I've always been a little bit anti-narration because I come from narrative and I'm like, ugh. but the, but I do think the, yes, absolutely. Like the putting yourself in it, you know, or using yourself mm -hmm. as the foil is, makes things more accessible. Also sometimes there isn't a character. There isn't like, right. you know, this is the other right. type, it depends on the type of film, like the Michael Moore films, which are like advocacy films or issue driven specifically issue driven there isn't one character that you're just you know like a right. film that you're following around that you, um so who do you latch on to you latch on to him you know right. yeah. again but that's and it's a, all, the trick to give you a character to hold on to right and it's, it's it also feels like it's the it's the gumbo of you know, you mentioned reality TV, you mentioned, um, we talk about doc narratives, like all these different types of content now have made audiences more fluent and right. in different type of, of, of cinematic language. And so, you know, and, and then the democratization of everything, it's like YouTube, MySpace, you know, all these different things that it, it's kind of like, we're, we almost don't know if it is content, if somebody's not walking us through the through the journey, that's right. And there's and that, well, you know, it's funny where when you talk about like a MySpace, like we're like, <laughs> like we're dating ourselves. But the but the the idea of really like like now it's it's like really like TikTok and Snapchat, like the mm -hmm. idea that you everyone is a content creator, you know. So well, I think Michael Moore. <laughs> yeah, Michael Moore was doing it just, he was just doing it early. Like his films are right. like on TikTok, if you really think about it, you know, yeah. you're following him through his world. But, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, there's so many, again, interesting 
I love the, the, as you said, the democratization of the whole of media in the way I think there's many things bad with it, but there's also like the fact that we're all are completely addicted to our phones and can't like get away from them. And also the spread of misinformation, all of that is terrible. But the right. idea yeah. that the access that people have to tell their stories, I think that yeah. to me, like the fact that there's films like Tangerine that are made off an iPhone now that end up at con, like that's cool. I mean, that would have never it's happened. crazy. And it's, you know it's what I mean? Absolutely crazy, yeah. It's revolutionary. So I, I, I want I want to get to black and missing, but I, I I first want to talk about that the transition or the impetus to directing. Um, like, what was it? Uh, and I'm being facetious here, but <laughs> was it like I keep getting this horrible footage and I could do better? Or you know, like what what was the thing that made you say I I, I want to direct this thing? I want to have more of a hand in. Um, what is being put together to tell the story and not just be, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, triage in the worst case, or, you know, in the best case, you know, complementing um, something that I might've added a different perspective to upfront. Sure. I think it's, it's actually so simple. I think I actually just started to become, I, I found myself becoming like uh, a really cranky, you know, there's a sort of a stereotype that editors are cranky, you know, <laughs> and I feel like I've, I saw, saw it happening to me. Like I was like, oh no, I'm becoming that cranky editor who, <clears throat> you know, I was impatient with my directors. Also, also too, I got older and I think that suddenly I was working with directors who were, you know, much, who were younger than me and less seasoned than mm -hmm. I was like, I'd done more films than they had. So right. there was also a level of impatience where I was like, I'd be like, just give me the footage and get out of the way. Like, I'm just, you know, let me make this film. And I, I was no longer being collaborative. And I, the collaborative part of filmmaking is actually something I love. And I found myself not like wanting that or not craving or being, and I felt like I was sort of shortchanging you know, mm. some of the directors I was working with, even though I would do a good job, I was like, you know, mean. So then I was like, what's wrong with me? And I realized I was, I think I was bored. Like I started to, I was just kind of like feeling like I had hit a wall. I was burnt or maybe burnt out around editing and that I needed something new. And, I, and for me, the I was like, okay, what will help me retain empathy <laughs> for, for, you know, like what's a job that will help me understand, you know, what, which of these other I could produce, but I'm not a good producer. Honestly, I'm, uh, I can do it. Uh, I shouldn't say right. that to everybody out there who's listening. I, I can absolutely do it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, but I just don't, I'm, it's not a passion for me. You know, like I'm definitely more of a creative. Right. So, right you know, directing and also to model I me, mean, here's me trying to model my life after Sam Pollard. So who mm. does all of it? And I was like directing, you know, he's segued into directing from, you know, from editing. And I was like, uh, maybe that's a organic stuff because it's creative. And, mm -hmm. um, and boy, I, I mean, I have to say that doing that, like, do I have empathy now for the director? Like, I'm like, do I, like, I feel like apologizing to every director I ever yelled at about like not getting the shot or, you know, why did you do this? Or like, why is this angle so terrible? Or why, you know, like, right. you know, what happened? How did you miss the moment? You know? Right, so, like, right. So. so, so it was, uh, I, I mean, what I think, um, is important for people listening is that that there's you're very self-aware 
you know, and, and, and reflective on like the type of artist you want to be and how to maintain that connection to the work. I think that's like huge because look, I, I, I hop around to a lot of TV shows. Um, uh, I, I won't name any, but sometimes I'm just like amazed, like you don't have to be here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, why are you like this? You don't have to be here. You're getting a shit ton of money. You know, it's a pretty great job, even if it's not where, you know, like, let's just like, you know, keep it in perspective. But if it's not what you want to do and then making the pivot, um, which is not necessarily an easy pivot, like I, I salute you for staying on that path. Um, to talk about Black and Missing, I watched it uh, over the weekend, um, brilliantly put together. Um, such a you know it's it's one of those things like I'm, I'm cursing at the screen every episode just because of how fucked up you know uh the institutions are here and the racism and the lack of care and the depths to which people will go um to maintain their position unearned in society i, I could turn this into a whole nother podcast for <laughs> I'm, um, I'm with it i'm here for it i'm, I'm here for it if you want to go there um, let's, we can do it yeah but so but tell me how that how that came how that came to be because i i, I the last thing i'll say is like, i i love that there's like everything we talked about all the all the like empathy all the artistry and and skill set that you developed it felt like you were able to wrap that around this conversation and create something in four episodes that people can watch be moved by as a story be educated to as a as a just as a citizen and hopefully be given something that they can move forward and act upon um so like how did how did that project come to be well, thank you. I mean, I'm so like, honestly, it's a huge honor that you watched it and that you that it resonated with me means so much because I think I have, you know how it is when you've worked on something for a really long time and you're a nerd, like I feel like I have no perspective, you know, like I know in my heart that it's powerful, but and it's but and I know how important the topic, you know, the topic is and how important Derek and Natalie are, though, you know, and Derek Butler, like the Derek and Natalie Wilson and Derek Butler, just to say their full names, um, you know, and how important Black and Missing is as an organization. But uh, to be honest, it was it, it came it was one of the hardest projects I've ever worked on and has made me rethink my whole life for a number of reasons. But the wow. the um, but not not because of any of the people in it, but because of the circumstances around it. So we. Uh, we basically, so Soledad's actually, Soledad's company, I worked, Soledad O'Brien, who's like um, an amazing black woman, right? We we had, I worked with her company on a film called Hungry to Learn. It was just a, a small uh, project, but that was really powerful about college students and like the hunger um, issues that they face trying to make it through college, like food insecurity. And then this project was one that they had been developing and they came to me and asked if I wanted to work on it. And I absolutely did. It was, you know, I, I love the premise. I love the fact that it was about women. It was centered around these black women who are, again, doing everything to uplift, protect and protect their community and find 
you know, missing BIPOC folks despite, right? It's like another story. And I think one of the reviews hit this. It's like yet another story of, you know, Black women who, and who always, it feels like, are the ones to be like, nobody's doing this. Screw it, I'll do it anyway. You know what I mean? I'll Well, so I'll do it. Like, nobody's going to handle this. I'll do it. You know, like, because nobody's paying attention, I'll manage this which is this like incredibly unfair burden, but speaks to the sort of bravery and resilience, right, of black women. And so I love the story and I was able to, it was really important to me to assemble a team that was reflective of the community. So, you know, basically I was able to bring on three other women who are directors, who are black women. So that was really like, that was amazing. We assembled a mostly BIPOC team. Again, I've been a big advocate around representation and inclusion and um, in our industry. So it just felt like here's my chance to kind of, model that. So I was I'm incredibly proud of the team that we put together. Everything, you know, we were starting production, everything was going, going swimmingly and then COVID hit like six weeks right. in. And so we had started in 2019 and we were supposed to kind of wrap it in a year and change. And and so that was rough. Everything sort of shut down. We shut down for six months. We came back in September and then we went back into shooting. And then, and we were shooting mostly in the DMV area and like Baltimore, you know, Virginia, DC. And then there was like the, you know, there was COVID. We kind of battled our way through COVID, which one of the two women, Derek and Natalie, Derek contracted it and was very sick. And we were very frightened for a while um, over that. But there was, then there was the insurrection. Like we were supposed to go shoot and there was the insurrection. Then we were supposed to go shoot and there were snowstorms. Then there was the cicada, like, uprising or whatever so by the end of it I was like I'm gonna like you know like we just I think the team was you know it just went on it was so much harder to make than for because of all you know everything around it and again the the families and the women were so kind and generous but it was a rough production so but we got through it we're all closer now for it. You know, I'm older, I've aged, <laughs> but like it was, but it was, you know, it's, and, and so, and we put it out into the world. I also had, and you know, the, really the team on this is everything. Like I had incredible editors um, who were passionate and kind of also made the most out of what it was meant to be a Verite series. And because of right. COVID it, we had to pivot. And so that also made it challenging, you know? Did, but, did you know it would be four episodes? Like, did you have a structure? And I and I guess also uh, maybe if, is, if there's like the the synopsis you you'd share uh, about the show just for folks who will go watch it after this interview. Yeah, sure. So, so Black and Missing, it was meant it was meant to be a six part verite series, um, which shifted because of. COVID, but it is, you know, the story of these, of two women, Derek and Natalie Wilson, who are sister in their sisters-in-law, and they are, um, they run this organization called Black and Missing, which focuses on finding um, and raising awareness around missing BIPOC people, and um, they are really this amazing duo who are doing so much with really with nothing. The organization is mostly them and volunteers 
there's no one else and they work full time, they raise their kids, they have, you know, they have families and yet they're these tireless activists and advocates. And um, the story is sort of a combination of their lives and then the lives of the the folks that they serve, who um, some of whom have missing loved ones and and all the systemic issues are interwoven in there as much as we could that lead to BIPOC people going missing at a higher rate and also remaining missing um, at a higher rate than anyone else. So right. What I what I think was impressive also and despite how just horrible the circumstances of, of everything that you're covering and that they do in within the organization, there's a hope. There's hope. It was still hopeful. There's a hope, you know? Um and there's still that like great wielding of of storytelling techniques. Like I think was it at the end of episode one, uh, when the hammer kind of drops on um I'm sorry, remind me of the gentleman's name. Um Derek Butler. Of Derek, yeah, and then you kind of learn the story there, and then episode two kind of gets deeper into it, and you're just like everybody with their own personal dramas still coming together to help the community, and it, it's a, right. it's a great film. But great, it's how series. I, forgive me, I I but I think what what to me, you know, as a person, as a BIPOC person, right? I'm like, this is what we always do. That's what we've always done. You know what I mean? It's like how we. Like everything we do, we do despite of white supremacy, right? Like we, you know, we work through it. We work around it. We step over it. We basically, it's the, and it's the fabric of our society, right? So here I'm going, making this a different podcast, but, but, you know, love it. but I just feel like this and these women are, and the families and the communities are indicative of that. There's always hope. Like who, what was the quote around us? Like how we, we hold on to hope, like, because really there is no other choice. Like it's what got, has gotten, you know, since the founding of America as the nation that it is, you know, from the indigenous people, you know, to, you know, to everyone who's still here today, like the, the, you know, hope is the, sometimes all there is, you know, that's really all there is. So, I think, um, and and the it's like hope and grit, and I think it's it's Vince Warren who says like you know, like they they're just representative. This story is representative of Black folks and particularly Black women who just you know everything is is you do everything you know everything is based on the spit and grit, right? Like there is are no resources, there are no systems put in place for us. We create them, you know, making a way out of no way. Like that's just sort of this story is really kind of that's the the heartbeat of it with these women you know do you see um does the story continue do you expect to continue following them or doing any kind of follow-up um, you know i think i think there are many opportunities coming out of this for them which is what we always wanted like we always wanted they they are there's a possibility like there's conversations with the white house now like i feel like they um their position is changing in society. I, and I, I really hope, you know, permanently changes as far as the, you know, what happens with the organization. So I think we have to see like where the story takes them and see if it makes what a follow-up might look like. But there's certainly, there's certainly chatter about it. You know, they are popular. Yeah. Like I'll say that, you know, they're awesome. popular and, and they're so, 
like lovely, you know, they're so like, just kind of warm and, you know, they're such like ordinary, again, they're the definite, what is the definition of a hero or a shiro? It's ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Like they are, they just embody that. And I think they're so inspiring that I could definitely could see people wanting more of them. I think we'll just have to see where they land up first. Right. Awesome. Well, this is the, we're on the home stretch or in the home stretch now. <laughs> Um, this is where I fire a few uh, questions at, at you uh, as we head out. Um, what's next for you? So um, what's next for me? So I basically spent, tried to spend like, since the series came out, sometimes just lying on my face because I was, you know, I was tired. I was like, you know, I mean, which I think is important to do in between projects, you know, like, and, and then there's definitely a bunch of things um, bubbling for this year that I'm excited about, like that, you know, none of them, you know, one is I'm working, one I can can speak about, which is I'm working um, on the, on a series for HBO. It's sort of the follow-up to Eyes on the Prize, like basically the next iteration of Eyes on the Prize, which is, this, you know, the seminal series about the civil rights movement. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and that's with an amazing, you know, it's with Don Porter's company and there's an amazing sort of uh, cohort of directors on that. So that's, um, I'm excited to be part of that. That's, you know, out in the world and definitive. And then I, but for myself personally, what's interesting, I think partly because some of my experiences on this last thing I've been thinking about, I really would like to try re returning to narrative for a little bit and see if, um, and you know, you're in it, but the, you know, segueing back into a lot of documentary directors uh, are making that transition. So now I'm thinking about that just for, because some of, some of the things, honestly, with COVID, it was so terrifying, like to, to be working with people. Again, it's a journalistic endeavor, you know, documentary, and you're often working with at least I am in the films I do with vulnerable communities, you know, and I, I just, I was like, this is, you know, it, it just was, it felt, it was hard to wrangle, you know, and, and it felt also, um, I was worried about putting people at risk the whole time to shoot with us, to tell their story. And, and so, and there's also some stories that I'm really interested in that I don't have the capacity, you know, the, there isn't a documentary there because it was never shot and it's, you know what I mean? Like nothing, there's right. nothing there. So I'm actually exploring um, some like projects that would be a return to narrative, which, uh, which I'm excited about. Okay. That sounds amazing. Um, the next question is if we were to watch the story of your life, um, it's multi-tiered. Uh, what genre would it be? <laughs> um, uh, in particular, because we talked about this, would it be in three or in five acts? Uh, who's directing it and who stars as you? It would be, okay, it would be uh, a satirical thriller. <laughs> it would definitely, it would definitely be... <laughs> It would definitely be a, or, or either that or a comedy of errors, because I feel like so many things that have happened to me in my life have been like sort of a combination of incredible good luck. And then like, you know, just like I like I literally like meeting Spike Lee, which actually totally changed the trajectory of my life life was happenstance. Like I just stumbled into him on the campus 
and in the most awkward way, you know? So like that, I feel like is kind of the, the basis for much. Um, so I, I feel know. like sort of uh, like, so, so maybe a satirical comedic thriller. Um, I'm trying to think who plays me. Oh my gosh. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross plays me. Cause she's okay. funny. Okay. <laughs> like, uh-huh. yeah. And we have when my my sometimes we have similar hair when I actually like wash my hair and do something with it. Um, I feel like she's you know that that feels realistic to me. And then was there a third part? Oh, is it a third? I think it's like uh, it's probably like a ten part comedic series. You know what I mean? Like a it's something like it's in the line of like. What are the, some of the new series that are out there? Have you seen sort of like that is actually a really, really funny Canadian series. Like it's like oh, that. Okay. I'll check it out. Or, or the it, sex it, it sounds lives. streaming. This is streaming. <laughs> <laughs> it's streaming. It's like streaming. the sex lives of college girls and sort of and like all that sort of stuff, you know. And then together. and who who the well, if it's a series, maybe uh who directs the pilot? <laughs> who directs the the what? I'm sorry. Oh, who directs the pilot? Maybe you, you there. Hey, How about that? I'm, you direct the pilot. I'm, this is right up my alley. I've worked with Tracy yeah. six times. Uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, satirical comedy is in, in my wheelhouse. Let's go. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. The final question is, um, what three character traits um, do you think someone needs to make it in this industry? So they definitely need... Uh, Courage, I would say. Like one is courage, like mm-hmm. sort of courage and um, and tenacity, right? Like those are those sort of go hand in hand. But I think uh, because it's not, you know, it's not easy. Like and particularly when you're starting out, the hours are long. It's sort of thankless, you know, no, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's like so much competition. You have to really believe. You have to be passionate about it. So, um, so maybe that's the second quality passion. Like you have to love it because if you don't love it, you'll hate it. You know, I've definitely met some younger folks recently who are like, maybe this is not for me after their first job, you know, they're like, this is too crazy. You know, this is too hard. So, um, so I think the, the passion for it, but I also think you, and this is, this is strange and I didn't, you know, but I also think, um, the I, the ability to be kind and collaborative is also really critical because I have found that like the people that I admire the most <clears throat> in the industry, like Sam Pollard, who's like my mentor and colleague and like and also like just my one of my favorite people in the world, like is a, a really good friend. I think I've watched him be a resource to everybody. You know, he's an incredible yeah. resource. He's so generous. He's um, so accessible and uh, and just like a, a great human being also, but also very comfortable talking about his flaws, you know, very comfortable, like still always learning, you know, like someone who's right. still, you know, even though he's at an age where he could just be like, no, I know it all. I've done it all. Everybody else sit down. It's so engaged and always learning you know and and sort of love and and that spirit um i think just creates such a healthy non-toxic uh culture for work and uh, which i think is really really important and particularly like again as 
um, a BIPOC person, you know, who really is, you know, thinking about wanting to reshape what, you know, kind of the top there's, you know, we've our industry, like so many others, you know, there is sort of a toxic foundation to it of patriarchy, white supremacy, exclusivity, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in really wanting to reshape that, I think, um, you know, I look to sort of the, the, the kind of culture that a lot of young folks are bringing, you know, to the table of, you know, of collaboration, of inclusivity, of um, the, like sort of the refusal to work in toxic spaces too, the rejection right. of that. Um, right. And also of like hierarchy. To me, I feel like, and this is something I learned in anthropology, right? Which was, which is a totally colonial exercise in itself. But some of the, <laughs> the stuff I took was, um, some of the classes I took were about debunking that, right? Trying to, again, um, have a different methodology to it. But I think, you know, the, in small societies where, you know, people don't aren't that aren't agricultural, every single person in a community is important because right. they're small, they're interdependent and everybody's job matters. And if somebody doesn't do their job well, it is understood that the entire community suffers. So the idea is right. to, you uplift everyone, right? On um, You see yourselves as part of the same team and everybody matters and everybody understands that. And so they do their job, right. whatever it is, even if it's like getting the water or like, you know, catching fish or, you know, um, no matter right. what the hierarchy, everyone feels included and important and invested. And I think that's the culture that I see sort of folks like Sam and other folks like, starting to create and that's really important to me as well right because the byproduct of that also was more people you know i feel that there is there are a lot of folks who have something to say that quit because it's been historically so difficult for bipod folks to get a foot in the door and that means that perspectives that could be world-changing or world-affirming for people who look like them don't reach an audience because that person quit and perhaps rightfully so in year 12 of the journey <laughs> you know what I mean and like and if, if folks can get there a little bit quicker and know that it's going to be challenging and difficult um, and have people you know like you're talking about like you had a kind of north star of a type of career that you could model because of the Sam Pollard, you know, it's all paying it forward to a point of um, more stories and, and people, you know, perceptions, reality, and the more narrative stuff and doc stuff that you get out there, it begins to change people's minds. That's right. That's so, right. Well, we'll see. We'll just make something every day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Keep trying. Um, That's all we can do. Keep trying. Yeah. But this is this has been awesome. Thank you for taking the time. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, catching up, and uh, I hope everybody checks out Black and Missing and all the other things that I'm going to outline uh, in the in the credits and in the intro and outro. Check this stuff out because it's important and it's entertaining. So there you have it. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman, 
Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, thanks for listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Next week, we've got the lovely Crystal C. Roberson, talented director, uh, has just wrapped up as producing director on ABC's Queens, um, and she uh, has directed shows like All-American for CW, Greenleaf. Uh, We both uh, directed on Long Slow Exhale, which will be coming out soon. And so we get down and have a really good conversation about her journey. So uh, tune in next week. Uh, I might hop on Instagram. I keep saying it. Um, It's been a little crazy, but I do want to give some book giveaways. So we'll get to that. Um, And I also, uh, before we head out, I want to give a shout out to Jasmine Jewett. I was talking to another director friend of mine, Angela Barnes, and Jasmine uh, recognized my voice from the phone call. And I was very surprised to hear that she's a, a longtime listener of the pod, a owner of the book, Transitions, um, and now an owner of some gear, thanks to Angela. I think she got the uh, baseball shirt that says director. So appreciate the support. As always, y'all, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. And I'll hit you next week. Peace.